whether you're a business owner or a high income professional, um, start thinking of assets in, in two different ways, offense and defense. And try and defense is you can have money coming in no matter what's going on in the world. Welcome to the Prosperity Perspective by DML, a conversation about how successful business owners invest their hard-earned money to preserve their wealth and what they might have done differently in hindsight. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we are joined by Denver Nois. Um, he's got some great insights to share with us, and I'm excited to kind of unpack it and get his perspective. So, uh, Denver, you want to introduce yourself to the audience? Yeah, it's great to be here today. Uh, my name is Denver Noah, president of Wealth for Life. I've been an advisor and a fiduciary for about the last 20 years. Um, a lot of what I do, I kind of learned in the real world. I kind of had these experiences where I ended up taking care of my mom, my dad, my grandma for about 10 years. They all got hit with health issues over life and ended up kind of living with me until they passed. Uh, my dad owned a business, pest control business for 20 years. So small business, uh, more than 20 years, I guess, small business has always kind of been my passion. But I saw the impact of inflation and taxes and all the other stuff and, and trials that it takes running a business. And, you know, and, and certain times the tax strategies and things caught up with him and caused, you know, major financial impact from the IRS. And he got audited, I remember, as a kid. And the IRS agents actually, this is back in the early 80s, came to his house and sat on the, on the couch in the living room. This is back in the crazy days. So I realized just the impact of taxes and how small business owners got a plan for that. And then taking care of both my mom and my grandma, you see that life doesn't always go as planned. And so you got to kind of set up financial systems a little differently. And a lot of the ways that people are taught to plan in the real world, I don't think works as well. So that's why I've kind of been on this mission to uh, really change the, you know, the industry, make it more broad based, you know, so it's not biased for just investing in the stock market, but really to do a lot of things that can create more financial security and financial peace of mind. That's awesome. And as you talked about kind of the entrepreneurial spirit that your dad had and you kind of getting in, kind of what was that transition like for you, uh, you know, getting in and running your own shop? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the first realization was like taxes are a threat to your wealth, because I remember he was starting to get real busy. He built it up three or four trucks. And then when he got audited, you know, this is early 80s, you know, and I think the back taxes were like 10 grand. But back then, that was a fortune to him. And I mean, it just hammered the business and hammered his growth. So then when I started, you know, my own business 20 some years ago, uh, which is the financial advising and all that type of stuff, I realized that, man, you got to be proactive on the tax side. You got to understand the tax code because that's, you know, a big part of it. And you got to, you know, play to win in that area. And it's the same thing uh, when you go out and you start to talk to CPAs, the accounting, you know, and tax preparers. So many of them aren't proactive in preparing. It's just kind of like, here's your numbers, here's the advice, you know, and you feel like you look at Elon Musk and, Be and Bezos and all these guys getting, you know, billionaire tax breaks. You're like, how do I get those tax breaks as a small business, right? Because it's, it's a big number. So I always kind of stay proactive in doing that. And I mean, I love being self-employed. You know, it, as you know, it's, I mean, it's, you know, sometimes you work 80 hours a week, but then, you know, the, the freedom and stuff, once you get over the hump, is pretty good. So... Yeah, the freedom's amazing, right? Financial time, uh, all of it. Once you hit that point, right? And so, I guess along those lines, you know, once you hit that point in your business, right, where you became profitable, didn't have to worry about roof over your head, food on the table. What did you look at in terms of where you put your profit at the time as you were kind of coming up? Yeah, I kind of lucked out. Um, you know, starting out on the insurance side of the business, and I had some people that showed me these products that had floors, so they wouldn't lose. 
And, you know, you would lock in the gains and stuff. And that's where it was insurance products. And I was like, wow, I like the idea of not losing, you know, and just kind of this escalator up, you know, value goes up, you're locking in gains. And then there were tax-free strategies on the insurance side. That's not to say that all the strategies are perfect and that's not the only strategy out there, but I really got enamored with this idea of creating tax-free income. And so I started using some of those tax-free strategies early on. And that's where I developed models of thinking about money in, in terms of tax buckets. You, know, you have taxable money, like your 1099 interest, your pay, uh, things like that. You have tax-deferred money, which is your 401k, your IRA. And then you have tax-free money, Roth, insurance strategies, and other things. And you want to have money in all three of these different buckets. But what happens is, and sitting down with you know, literally thousands of business owners, they're all in the taxable, they're tax-deferred. And they don't have very little money in the tax-free. And so that becomes a big problem because then they go to exit the business, they get down to retire, and all that income they're getting now is still taxable. They don't have the deductions and the write-offs, uh, and it can add up to a pretty big number. So that was my biggest insights, and I started really doing that early on, is planning that diversification. And when you do it that way, you can literally save six figures or more over the course of retirement by having taxable and tax-free buckets. And that's called the tax bracket strategy. I call that, I talk about that a lot where you're using tax brackets, you know, you have these 10% brackets, 12% brackets, you max those out, and then you move the tax-free sources for the other brackets, and that can literally save you $20,000, $30,000 a year when you're in that distribution phase. And you go, wow, $30,000 a year times 20 years of retirement, that's $600,000 in tax savings. And that's the kind of stuff that starts to get people's attention because no one really talks about that. They don't talk about what happens on the exit strategy. So what was, uh, you talked about these different components, very life insurance based, uh, that was some of your background, which makes perfect sense. Can you, can you walk through the example of one of those first things that you did? Uh, like what's that first step that someone might take, uh, that you took and kind of lucked into? Well, I would say that when I first started, the strategies were good. Now they're a lot better. So now they've been streamlined. And so one of the tax-free programs we use all the time is called the tax-free matching program. And that's where it uses an insurance type strategy, but the banks literally match it three to one. So if you have, uh, you know, you go in, you put in say 50,000 a year for five years, you got a quarter million in, the bank actually adds 750,000 into that, similar like they would on real estate. So now you have a $1 million tax-free asset. That asset then continues to grow just like real estate, uh, but it's under an insurance contract. And so they're using call options to grow the money, which gives it this safe return. But everything in that is tax-free. So then it creates this kind of tax-free pension that, you know, when you get down to retirement, you have tax-free money going out. Very similar concept to real estate. Now, they do some enhancements to it. So you don't have personal guarantees. You don't have the financing stuff you have on real estate. But what it works out to is a very good complement to, like, what I always talk about is offensive and defensive assets. So defensive assets are where, hey, you're trying to build multiple streams of income. So that if your business isn't producing anymore or you sell the business, how are you going to replace that? Obviously, real estate is one alternative and lending strategies like you guys do is another. Business income can be a third one. And then you have these tax-free um, tax matching program. We call that as another one. That creates a foundation of, of assets that aren't subject to market volatility. Nothing wrong with the stock market. I like stocks. We do stocks too. But it's much easier to invest in the stock market and other strategies when you have this foundation of defense set up. And so the tax-free matching program is a great way to do that. That's Now, I have those strategies without the matching. I wish I had the matching when I started them 20 years ago because the matching makes it so much more efficient. It literally can double the amount of income you can take out 
And people love that because it's only a five-year contribution schedule. So they can contribute for five years and then they have this you know, tax-free income stream that's going to be really robust down the road. That's also so important for business owners because of exit planning. You know, all of the business owners think they're going to sell their business. They think it's going to, you know, they're not sure what it's going to sell for, but the stats are 90% of the businesses don't sell, you know, so that creates a problem and they keep putting money into the business throughout the course of their time and reinvesting, reinvesting, which is good to do, but they have never put an exit plan in place. So the idea is how can we take the smallest amount of capital out of your business as possible to secure your future income? while leaving the majority of your capital liquid so you can continue to use it in the business and grow it. Because it might be that the business just has the highest ROI. And that's what always drives me crazy when I hear people talking about, you know, hey, I went and talked to a financial advisor, they own a business, their business is giving them like 100% return on capital. And the guy's like, no, I need to pull money out and invest in stocks and get their 6%, you know, or whatever. And again, not condemning all stock market investments, but sometimes the best return is in the business, but now all the eggs are in one basket. So you need a strategy where you can get an exit out, don't tie up your capital, use financial leverage because that makes it more efficient. And then you create a tax-free exit. If the business doesn't sell, great. At least you know you haven't secured your future income. So you talked a little bit about diversification, right? Not having all the eggs in one basket. You've also talked about tax-free, tax-deferred. What are those big buckets, right? Uh, if you've got a client that's got, you know, sizable portion of assets that you would say, hey, these are the main buckets that you want to have. Uh, what would those be for you? Yeah. So you take the three brackets, you know, the taxable money. Obviously, there's not a whole lot you can do about that unless you're, you know, that's the tax money that's coming in from real estate, coming in from business. So obviously, if you can, real estate is some of the best current tax deductions using the depreciation, the bonus depreciation schedules, and all the other things you can do on real estate. To reduce current taxes, that's what you use on that first bucket, the taxable bucket. Then the tax deferred, that's the most common one that everyone hears about, the 401k, the set plan, defined benefit, deferred compensation. Those are the things that look really great now because they give you a tax deduction now. But what people forget to mention is that just means tax delayed. You're going to pay the taxes later on as ordinary income. So you put $50,000 a year in a SEP, that's great, but that $50,000 is going to grow to over hundred. Now you pay taxes on 100000 as ordinary income when you retire. That's not to say you don't do a tax deferred plan, but everybody goes like all in on that. And then you go to the third bucket, which is the tax-free bucket, and people have literally nothing in that most of the time. Maybe a little bit in Roth, but a lot of good business owners, you know, they make too much to do the Roth. Um, and there's a lot of bad insurance strategies out there too. That's a lot of times you'll people hear about that for tax-free. But there are still very good tax-free insurance strategies out there, like the tax-free matching program I was talking about. Uh, so you try and get money that you'll know that when you get down to retirement, maybe you have you know, 10, 20% in taxable, 30% tax-deferred, 50% in tax-free. And that's that money in the tax-free side that really moves the tax angle down, uh, down the road. It makes a huge impact, huge impact. You know, It's the biggest complaint I hear people get down to retirement and like, yeah, I've paid so many taxes over the course of my life and I'm still paying, you know, are they ever going to go away? So. No, death and taxes, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you just got to figure out how to operate within the system, um, which is what you do so well. Um, in that, um, when you're talking about the life insurance products that create this tax-free, right? We often hear about term and uh, whole life. Right. Is it on one of those chassis that then just has, you know, loan capability on top of it or is it something completely different? 
it's kind of a little bit different of a hybrid. Uh, so that particular strategy is a term blend with indexed insurance. And so part of the reason they do it that way um, is because they need to reduce the cost. Like there's a lot of bad insurance products out there that are very expensive, um, aren't going to do what they're described to do. There's certain strategies, like I'm not particularly a fan of whole life for you know creating income. I think the yield is too low. They can't use it in some of these more advanced programs because the yield is too low. And it's not to say that, hey, if you want whole life or death benefit, it's not a good thing. So I'm try, I always try not to make blanket statements and say, like, not all these strategies are bad. Not all of them are good. But when you structure these right, like these are indexed insurance contracts. So what they do is they use a market index. Uh, most of them, the good ones now, don't have caps on gains, but they have a 0% floor. So if the market drops, you don't lose. They use call options and option strategies. And so they'll lock in gains every 12 months. So it gives a very safe way to earn interest. And the banks know that. So that's why, you know, when you look at someone putting in $250,000 and a bank will put in $750,000 without a personal guarantee, without credit checks, they deposit it into the insurance company on your behalf because they know the insurance company is going to guarantee it and they have a certain amount of safety. So, and then when to your earlier question, it's structured with term insurance is blended to keep the cost below 1%. So it's kind of a completely different strategy that was originally designed for people with net worths over 10 million. Uh, it would have been called premium finance back in the day. So one of the higher profile cases, Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh created a $1.2 million tax-free income using this strategy. Uh, and it was financed just like the way we're describing it, but you don't have to be quite at the Jim Harbaugh level to have it done um, and make it work really efficiently. So what you're looking for in that strategy is you want it low cost, which they do, they have it below 1%. You don't have the risk. You're not on the loan doc. You're not on the hook for the bank money. Insurance companies providing the guarantees. And typically what we'll see is that it doubles the amount of income that someone could normally get versus saving on their own. So if you run those projections and a business owner's putting away, you know, a certain amount of money and it's going to give him a hundred thousand a year when he retires, this will typically double that, you know, again, make it about 200,000. For the same money because you're using bank leverage, which is the same way you do it on real estate. That's why you go out and you buy another property, you put 25% down, the bank adds, so, you know, they're 75%. So now you have this larger asset earning interest. Same exact concept, just a different asset. And why is it under the insurance umbrella? Because under the insurance umbrella is what makes it tax free. So insurance strategies have the best provisions under the tax code. To make things tax-free, it's the same uh, in the same way that like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, they have tons of assets. They borrow against the assets. Loans are tax-free. Loans are one of the keys to tax-free income. It's one of the secrets out there. These strategies are structured the same way. You build up this tax-free income, then you take loans off the asset. It's still producing, you know, six to eight percent return tax-free, and you take that income out. And it's never reported, and so it becomes a great way to balance that out and have tax-free income streams. So when you're creating the leverage, you put a million bucks in, you get three million from the bank. Do you put all four million in with the insurance company, or are you taking yeah. some of that three million and putting it? So all of it goes into the insurance, and then you're using essentially the gains from the insurance on the tax-free money. That's what you're taking out. Correct. So you're creating the leverage, and the leverage helps create those higher returns that would differentiate versus the other life insurance products, and it's also cheaper because you're using bank money versus insurance. Okay. Wheels are turning, right? Like, yeah, it's like a fire hose. And it, it's not to say that a regular, like an index life you can buy on its own without financing. And it's okay. You know, it might do five, 6%, you know, which is fine, but it's not going to move the needle. Like when you add bank money, you know, now your internal rate of returns over 10, 10 or 11. Right. 
I mean, it gets, it's and just as you described, you have more money working, right? right. And that's just what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You're taking advantage of uh, financial innovation and uh, the financial markets and uh, the fiat money that we have available to go create more. That's right. Play the game or fall further behind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how uh, the lack of information creates a gap, right? Um, uh, and it's unfortunate, right? From a, a tax code perspective and just an overall, like those who know what they're doing are going to get better and get ahead, right? Uh, if you know the game, but the people who are able to find the game or have the resources to play the game, right? becomes narrower and narrower over time, which is unfortunate, but uh, it's the world we live in. It is the world we live in. And as we've talked about the, you know, the amount, the, when I look at even my own clientele that are in that ultra high net worth, how do they do it? It's acquiring assets. It's using debt, the money that's printed out of air, the monopoly money to acquire more assets and just continue to grow and scale and grow and scale. That's how you go from three to 5 million, 5 million to 10 and 10 million and beyond is by acquiring more assets using other people's money. And I always say it like this, like the average investor chases risk with their own money and gets upset when they lose. High net worth investors use other people's money, put more of it in safe assets and get steady returns. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. What's the uh, what's the most exciting thing that you're working on or that, you know, the, uh, the newest shiny object, so to speak, that you're uh, you're looking at that gets you excited as you're kind of exploring today? Oh, that's a terrible question because I'm an entrepreneur, right? So I have shiny objects. <laughs> um, crypto has been a bit of a rabbit hole for me. So I've been learning about liquidity pools and staking in crypto and, and spending a fair amount of time in there. Um, it is fun. You know, it is, it's certainly speculative and risky, but you see the impact of it. And I think that to me as a fiduciary mindset, like I have an obligation to get to know all these different asset classes. Because clients are asking, people are like, hey, how can I get involved in crypto? What can I learn about it? Um, so that's certainly the one that's, that's very, you know, on the top of my mind. And then the next one is expanding on the real estate side. Um, I think there's great opportunities in short-term vacation rentals. I mean, I think that's one of the best asset classes out there right now um, before institutional money gets in, because I know they're looking at it super hard and figuring out ways that they can get in and scale. Um, and so when you think about uh, myself as a business owner, and I know you love real estate. Like if I'm thinking about legacy and things that I want to provide for my kids and creating generational wealth, you know, I can think about having five, six, or ten vacation rental properties that are producing cash flow. Um, and you know, there's ways you can obviously you can hire management. There's ways to do it passively versus active, you know, and all that stuff. But I think that's you know a pretty good opportunity right now for the first few years. I mean, already it's super competitive, but there's software out there now that is very uh, that can analyze the Airbnb data and the VRBO data. And you can look at the algorithms and see which areas of the country don't have enough vacation rentals and stuff. So there's tools out there, I think, to do some good analysis. And the, the long, my long-winded answer there is there's still ways to find deals, even though prices are getting pretty high. Where do you, uh, as I think through that, the one thing that gives me pause that, you know, as an outside force is, um, you know, uh, whether it's city or county or state legislation coming down. Uh, and here in Seattle, we've had, uh, you know, different regulations that you can no longer have vacation rentals that were, are within 200 feet of the water. 
um, you know, up in the mountain towns for us, which are, you know, Leavenworth, Chelan, uh, you know, the, the cities have shut down and I've actually had, you know, ones that I've booked that have been canceled, uh, cause the city is no longer allowing them. Um, so I, I guess what's your thought on kind of where that goes and the impact to that strategy over the long run? Yeah, I think I see some of the same things like out near Colorado and Durango, there's like, you can't make it a rental for three years, and, but yet there's others, little sit towns in Colorado that you can. So then that becomes doing the research on it. Um, and then surprisingly, I mean, I've seen some areas in Phoenix where people are buying regular homes, like not really near anything. And those things are still renting out, you know, like crazy. And so some of that is just analyzing the data. Um, VR, you know, the air DNA is a good site to do that. Air DNA has great research. You can put in zip codes and you can see average rental and occupancy rates in the area. Um, but I think that's just more homework. It's more homework. And I think that the window, I don't know how you know short the window is. It's maybe a couple of years, but to acquire more properties before it kind of gets even more saturated. But and I'm sure there will always be turnover. There'll always be real estate people are selling and wanting, you know, the mom and pops, people that have one Airbnb and they want to get out of it. I mean, I think those sales are going to still happen. Uh, but I think to your point, you've really got to do your homework. And I look at them almost as a dual purpose. Like, would I want to go vacation there? And would I like having this place? And if that's the case, then yeah, then I'll, you know, I'll really look at that um, versus just straight out of investment. So I don't so, want to add one more thing. I would add some of the passive funds that I've seen starting to pop up on short-term vacation rentals. That can add a little security because if you're owning, you know, a portion of 10 Airbnbs, you know, things like that, that's going to give you a little more stability, I think, too. So. And I think that's why the institutional guys are, you know, yeah. looking at it hard, right? Uh, they can put the portfolios together. They can charge a premium for managing and providing diversification and, uh, you know, create access to it. But, um you know, on the finance side, what we've seen is uh, government recently took price increases on uh, financing for second homes uh, because a lot of people are doing exactly what we're talking about, right? Where they identify a second home, they call it a second home, they want to finance it to get the lowest cost, uh, but they're really using it as an Airbnb for most of the time and uh, government's catching on and wants a bigger chunk. Going back to there will always be taxes, right? Um, right. And, uh, you know, we're seeing increases there, not to say that there's not deals, you can't structure it in a way that makes sense, right? But uh, I think that maturation cycle that we're talking about, right, is is closer and closer to the top uh, with with each month and year that goes by. Um, you know, interesting. I agree. I, mean, I, I agree. There's, it's getting harder and harder for the smaller investor to get started in that. And it, it takes bigger money to do it. Yeah. Um, where you can go buy blocks, right? Or you're not as worried about the overall price, right? Because you know you're going to have, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just a different model at that at that scale, right? Um, it changes the economics, but um, yeah, interesting in terms of the insight of like, hey, it needs to be something that I would use too, right? Uh, which then gives you, you know, if city or, or state legislation changes you can still use it or you can rent it out long-term, right? And it has other cool purpose for, uh, for you. Um, as we're wrapping up with time here, Denver, what if you were to leave one piece of advice with the listeners, what would that one, one thing be for them? Well, as whether you're a business owner or a high income professional, um, start thinking of assets in, in two different ways, offense and defense. 
In tribe defenses, you can have money coming in no matter what's going on in the world. So you try and build some different types of assets that can have different streams of income and preferably do a lot of that on a tax-free basis. So that just makes life more stable. And so you're not just dependent on the stock market and, and your job, you know, or the business, sometimes the business start building those multiple streams of income that can provide a lot more peace of mind, a lot of different security, um, nothing wrong with stocks, but there's more to the investing and more to the world than stocks. And that can be a small part of your stuff, but setting up those other income streams, the people that I see that are happiest and most peace of mind, they have those multiple different assets. They have a good amount of tax protection. And so if you know things are happening in the world, there's always places to get money and try and work toward that. I think that's probably some of the most important things people can do. Awesome. Appreciate that insight. And uh, for our listeners who want to connect back with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Uh, you can go to wealthforlife.net. That's the website, wealthforlife.net. Or, or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter. So it's just my first and last name, Denver Nois, uh, on Twitter. And um, I do a lot of tweets and comments and stuff there. So that's a good place to connect and message me. Otherwise, just wealthforlife.net. Check out some of the video series. We do the Friday recap newsletter where I share all the ideas and insights and tax protection stuff that I learned from all my high net worth clients. And I'm always sharing those strategies each week. And uh, there's always some good tips in there. Awesome. Appreciate the time, Denver. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on The Prosperity Perspective. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, please head over to theprosperityperspective.com, where you can hear from other successful business owners on their approach to investments. On our website, you'll be able to learn more about how DML Capital currently helps other business owners, like yourself, diversify their investments and grow their wealth. Take our short quiz to see if you're ready to take the next steps toward your financial success. 